Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This is episode 493. It's a startup roundtable with Craig Hewitt, Einar Volset, and myself. It's an interesting discussion because we're located in three different cities on two different continents. And so we're able to give each of our takes on how things are in our city, how they feel amid the, the coronavirus pandemic. We talk about how our, our businesses are looking and reacting, as well as you know advice we're giving to founders. We talk about the, the shift to work from home, look at the payroll protection program, and just talk about you know the fact that the you know essentially that money has has run out as of today when we're recording. And then we dig into a tweet thread, a really interesting day by day account of uh, Stuart Butterfields, who is the founder or co founder of Slack. And he talked about how they're reacting to it and all that stuff. So it's a really interesting show today. I'm glad you're here to check it out. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Inner Volset and Craig Hewitt. So welcome back to another Startup Roundtable. We're going to talk about a variety of topics today. I'm really excited to have my two guests on the line. Einar Volset, co-founder of Tiny Seed. You and I talk quite a bit, but it's it'll be fun today to get your uh, opinion and thoughts on some stuff. How are you feeling today? Feeling pretty good, you know. All in all, you know, still locked down, but uh, what can you do? Yep, and you're you're calling to us from Santa Cruz, California. That's right. And my second guest is Craig Hewitt, founder of Castos. Podcast listeners have heard from you many times on this show, as well as on your show, Rogue Startups. How's it going today, sir? Yeah, doing well. Thanks, Rob. Calling to us from France. So we got a pretty pretty good perspective. A lot of time zones on this call, and and three different cities that are probably in three different phases of, of this global pandemic. I'm curious, you know, Craig, from a personal perspective, and, and I want to kind of walk through some personal stuff and talk a little bit about business, and then you know we'll get into kind of some news stories. But you know, personal perspective, where you are in in Annecy, France, is it how is it there? Are you wearing masks when you go outside? What's the the state of affairs and the kind of the, the thinking, the mindset there? Yeah, so we uh, definitely wear masks when we go to the grocery, and that's basically all we're allowed to do. So the country, France, only lets people leave for certain work-related you know, jobs, uh, to go to the grocery store, to run necessary errands, to go to the hospital, <laughs> or to do some exercise outside. And for us, where we live, it's within a kilometer of our house, and you have to carry this signed piece of paper stating why you're leaving on that day at the time you leave. And uh, so, yeah, I go to the grocery store once a week and that's it really. And we've been like this for five weeks almost now. And we have another three weeks left. You know, I think mentally the hardest part is just kind of feeling sad for myself and for my family. And, my, you know, my kids miss their friends and they're only talking to them on the phone. And that's not how kids should be. But at the same time, I feel really, really, really fortunate that work is relatively normal. You know, I work from home most all the time. I miss my co-working space, but but that's a luxury, really. But we have a lot of friends that are doing really bad financially and professionally. And I feel really fortunate that, that at this point, at least I'm not. So that's the silver lining. And do you think after the next, so you said there's three more weeks of, of self-quarantine or quarantine in essence, do you feel like the gates will open up again and you'll be less restricted or do you think they're going to extend it at this point? Uh, no, I think at May 11th, they'll open some things back up, but it will be very, very, very slow. You, you know, the, the analogy I heard is that it will kind of be the opposite of how we got into this kind of total confinement, right? First, it was like, don't go out unless you have to. And then it was like schools are closed and then it's restaurants are closed and then everything is closed. And so I, I think it'll just be the opposite rollout of that 
starting on the 11th, but I don't expect our kids to go back to school properly for the rest of the year, which is the first week in July. Yeah, it's a pretty common sentiment. Einar, your kids are confirmed here in California and aren't schools essentially, I was going to say canceled, but really it's home learning and distance learning. That's through the rest of the year, right? Through the rest of the school year. Through the rest of the school year, yeah. They made that call, I think, two weeks ago. I thought it was borderline a little too early to make that call, but sort of what we've been expecting as well. Yeah. Are you, and how about you guys? Are you, I mean, I know you live on a small farm in essence, so you don't have to, <laughs> you have land that you can walk around and, and be in your own property. But when you go to the grocery store, are, are you and your family wearing masks or, you know, is it only you going out? Yeah, it's, it's, it's usually just me going out just because I'm a complete extrovert. And so I, I need to see people, so even if it's through a mask. And it's funny, like we've been, it's been gradually ramping up here, like in terms of how seriously people are taking it. I, I noticed a couple of days ago was the first time I went to Whole Foods and I didn't see anyone without a mask on, which which was quite surprising. And then, I mean, really the main thing here that we've noticed is that, you know, Santa Cruz is a big surfing surfing spot, obviously. And uh, they actually closed the beaches here temporarily over Easter and actually banned surfing in all of Santa Cruz County, which uh, some of the locals didn't take too kindly to. That's very surprising. Yeah, I know the culture down there. And uh, we used to vacation there when I lived in California. So that is, as we say a lot these days, un- unprecedented. It has no precedent, <laughs> you know, probably hasn't been done since, I don't know, some pollution or something, ha- you know, happened years ago. How about you for the prediction, you know, when you will be out and about again with less restriction, you know, where things will start opening up again? I think early May is is when I think uh, things will start to get sort of normal-ish. I mean, we still have, we still don't have the same kind of very strict lockdown. So you can you're still discouraged from going places, but there's still a fair amount of people out and about. You know, social distancing, but still, you know, they're not staying within a mile of their house or whatever. But yeah, I don't I don't know how they're going to back into it. The main question really is like, what are, what are they going to do with the schools? Like, because everything everything pretty much hinges on schools, like the economy. Like, you can say whatever you want about getting people back to work and things, but the fact of the matter is. If there's no school to put your kids in, the economy is not going anywhere near back to normal. And, and I, I don't know if anyone is actually looking at like are people actually studying what's going on with kids. Like, is it safe to put kids back in? Are they actually carriers or are they just asymptomatic? And, and, and I don't know. That's that's sort of the main unknown for me really right now. Yeah. And here in Minneapolis, it's similar similar to California in that we don't have to you know carry papers like Craig said. We are discouraged from going out. I do go to the grocery store about once a week. And we were lucky to live across the street from a lake and there's walking trails and paths and bikes, you know, bike trails and stuff. So we do get out and about and get our exercise. I was not until, but maybe last week, thinking about wearing a mask until the CDC made that, you know, that pronouncement. We don't have masks here, so we're gonna have to make our own. I haven't been out aside from just going to the lake, which... I'm probably not going to wear one just to walk across the street. But Sherry said she went to the store the other day. I I believe it was Whole Foods as well. And she said almost everyone there had a mask. So it definitely, it feels like a similar, you know, a similar kind of turning there. And in terms of my prediction, I think I'm on, on board with you guys as well. Like May 4th, I think that's a Monday. And I believe that's the day that currently that Minneapolis is supposed to currently scheduled, you know, right now it's, uh, what is it, April 16th. So that's still two and a half weeks out. Um, but we are scheduled to start having some things reopen then. I'm curious to turn it more to to business and, and company stuff. You know, A&R with Tiny Seed, we have 20 something portfolio companies, as well as, you know, we run Tiny Seed itself and have a small team there. Obviously, we've been impacted by the microconf postponement. And that's been a big effort to figure out 
when the new dates are. I and mean, we did just recently announce them that it was moved to, to mid-November. And we have to make adjustments because then MicroConf Europe is like three weeks apart. So if you go to microconf.com, you can get all the details of that. But, uh, you know, aside from that, I mean, you know, how, how, have you, how have you seen the companies, the startups that you advise or that you're involved in or that you're an investor in, how have you seen them acting? And, and I guess, like, what advice have you been giving to those folks? So it's, it's very dependent on what industry you're in, pretty much, like what industry you're serving, because it's been all over the map. There's been a small handful that have gone from doing great to 95% drop in revenue pretty much overnight. And then, you know, obviously those guys are struggling and really scrambling to get whatever cash flow they can in the door. And so it's been a fair amount of time helping them think through and navigate sort of the, the, the relief efforts that's available to them, whether that's PPP or EIDL or, you know, really whatever there is in terms of bringing in, in private investment capital as well. But then on the flip side, there are, you know, a small, small number of companies that are doing incredibly well. It was actually like, you know, <laughs> with Craig on here is doing, is, is doing well. Like it's a good thing that more people want to start, start doing their own podcasts if you're a podcast hosting company. So it's been, it's been very bifurcated in the sense that, you know, there's a fair amount, there's sort of a middle because the kind of companies that, you know, we invest in, there's a middle that's doing fine and slightly nervous and a little bit down perhaps. And, you know, probably saw the worst of the like cut all the expenses probably about a week or two ago. And then there are these two classes of other companies, one that's doing really well and one that's doing really badly. So it's kind of been all over, to be honest with you. And how about you, Craig? I mean, I guess we got a little glimpse in there and I've, you know, have inside information and, and know what's going on with uh, Castos as a, since you're a tiny seed company, but how, how has this been impacting you, you know, the business and, and, you know, I, maybe even your team's mindset? Yeah. So, so I think starting with the team is, is apropos because I mean, it is the most important thing that, that we have, like the most important asset, right, is our team and the the people that are moving the platform forward and serving customers and helping kind of spread the word about podcasting in general and our solution. And so we've always had a lot of focus on, you know, one-on-ones between me and the team and weekly team meetings. And and those are just a lot more important now. And the focus of those meetings is, is literally, you know, hey, how is everyone doing? Is everyone healthy? Is everyone's, you know, family healthy and are they happy? And, you know, is there anything that you all need? Because, well, it's just important, right, on a, on a personal level. But then if we don't have a good team moving the ball forward, then, then we're sunk, just like, you know, I was saying, these companies that are really struggling. So, so that's really kind of solidified the most important thing for us is the team. And so that's been nice to be able to kind of provide that structure and backdrop professionally for our team. But, yeah, I mean, I think that we're just fortunate to be in an industry that's growing in general. And then right now when people can't go anywhere, you know, they finally just start to start, you know, start a podcast. And so we're in the same kind of boat as, you know, webinar providers and people like Zoom and these other remote serving remote kind of tools and purposes industry. And I, I think the thing we take away from it is that's a trend that will continue for a long time. And this will probably accelerate that and bring companies that weren't going to be hybrid remote or remote first or whatever into that fray. And we think this will continue going forward. You know, there are companies that wanted to rip the Band-Aid off, but were scared to, and now they had to. They they won't want to go back because their employees love working from home and doing podcasts instead of in-person meetings and things like that. So I I think that some degree of this will continue for a lot of companies. 
Yeah, it's interesting to me. There's a couple articles that we can actually dig into right now because uh, I have a topic for, you know, that I want to touch on about this whole working from home thing. It It's still, and this is my mindset and it's probably to my detriment, but once I've come to a realization about something like, hey, working from home works and it's, you know, I've been doing it for 15, more than 15 years, actually, maybe 18 years and on and off. I worked a couple office jobs in there, but of course, working from home is a thing and works and is, you know, I mean, it's just, this is, it's like when people discover bootstrapping and they're like, wow, you can bootstrap a SaaS. It's like, yes, we've been talking about that for 10 years, you know, but it's just still so odd to me that the rest of the business world is just catching up to this. And I, I think, you know, J, Jason Fried and DHH probably feel similar. It's like, guys, we wrote a book on this years ago, but I have a couple articles I passed you guys, you know, how Apple is working from home and it walks through their stuff. There's another article about bosses, not Apple bosses, but just bosses in general, uh, panic buying spy software to keep tabs on remote workers. I mean, you know, Anar, you've worked from home for, for a long time. Is it, what do you think about watching these big companies kind of, some of them seem to do it relatively well, but a lot of them seem to be kind of fumbling, fumbling the ball as they move towards working from home? Yeah, I'm, I was always surprised that, because again, most of the companies that sort of I, I surround myself with are all you know, they never really usually had offices anyway, even if they had the, the inclination to eventually get there, they usually had to start out in someone's, you know, house or whatever. So, so, so the, I guess the DNA of, of doing work from home or at least working remotely or having a distributed team was always built into the kind of companies that I dealt with day to day. So it's quite surprising to see these companies, you know, like I said, scrambling to, to put things in places and, and being super nervous about it. I mean, I, I see some of it for the, you know, the work I do with discretion on the sell side and we i sometimes you know talk to a potential acquirer and 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 they're sort of horrified when i when i tell them yeah there's 25 employees and they're distributed all over the world or at least all over the united states and and certainly on that side people are not used to it i think that's it's just you know it's just a reflection of the sort of you know the environment that we we or at least i move in in the sense that i i don't, I don't get a lot of exposure to, to these companies that now seem to be scrambling <laughs> Yeah, and Craig, you run you run multiple remote teams and and have been remote for for many years. Something that I think about this is I used to have an office and I would hire people to be in the office. I had certain criteria in my head of like I'm hiring a worker, a coworker who's I'm going to work with on a day-to-day -day basis in person. When I hire remote, I think about different things. Like I almost have different criteria in my head. And I can imagine if you had hired a bunch of folks to work in an office and suddenly are, are thrown into the chaos of having to move everyone remote, you know, that, that would be complicated. Do you, do you feel, I mean, I, I believe that you hired folks at your prior job, you know, before you had started your companies and I'm assuming they probably worked in offices because I know you were in sales. Did you, you feel like you had that similar dichotomy of like hiring remote versus hiring someone to be at an in-person job? Yeah. So it's interesting. My roles before were always in, in the field, if you will, like in field sales in field research going, I was in the medical field. So going to hospitals and doctor's offices and it's kind of similar. I never thought about this, but it's kind of similar to a remote team in that the most important thing is accountability for me now. Like when we hire somebody, maybe the first thing is like, can you communicate well? But then the second one is accountability and autonomy. And that was very much the same before because you're a team of, you know, whatever. We were a team of 10 people before covering, you know, a large metropolitan area or something. And you all have to be able to take care of the things you said you were going to take care of and communicate back to the team and organize. And it's the same thing here, right? Like with Castos, we're five people in four continents. And I can't and don't want to keep track of everybody all the time. And so the most important thing is just, you know, hey, 
this is the game plan. We have a meeting every Monday. This is the game plan for the week. Everybody's on the same page. Anybody have any questions? Okay, cool. We'll talk next week. And hopefully all those things got done. And if not, we have, you know, Slack and all this kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, that is the most important thing is people to be able to kind of work independently. Yeah, and I think written communication becomes a huge deal when you're remote versus if there's 10 of you sitting around a table, much like we were in the in the drip offices here in Minneapolis, there was a you know, t- development team of 10. We were in Slack, but you didn't need to type stuff to communicate for the most part. Like you could just walk up and have a conversation off the cuff all the time and switching to remote, then it be- all becomes in Slack and email. And so therefore, like having that ability, that written communication, and I know that is such a value that that I've always upheld. And, and when I hear people say, hey, you know what makes a great developer? Write, the ability to write code and also the ability to communicate in writing. I think that's so true. I think any role, the secondary factor that I like to evaluate is the ability to communicate well in writing and clearly, right? So it's not going back and forth a lot. Do you find that, Craig, on your team that uh, a, is that is that a requirement that you that you have, you know, when you're interviewing people and, you know, do you feel like it's a, a critical piece to be running a remote team? Yeah, absolutely. I think the automatic folks have written about this, that they start a lot of their interviews over chat and, and we do the same. So, you know, it used to be Skype, but yeah, we would along have have a bit of a chat over email or on Skype in written form and then start a call. And I think that's really powerful because yeah, if you can't communicate cohesively in written form that, that there's no chance <laughs> to especially especially to work async if everybody's in the same time zone give or take it's okay but we're over six time zones and that's a mess next story i want to talk about is the united states uh, payroll protection program as part of the big stimulus package if you've been following this podcast you've heard us talking about it and we did a live stream special in our and brennan dunn and i a couple weeks ago talking about the the government stimulus. I'm curious, the payroll protection program, the idea behind it, if you haven't heard, is it it gives U.S. companies that qualify, small businesses, a loan for two and a half months of payroll. And then if they don't lay anybody off for a certain amount of time, then they get that forgiven. It essentially becomes like a grant or just, you know, a, a gift. It's a stimulus. That's a high level. You know, you can go read about it. We actually have a link on microconf.com um, that ANR has been updating, and it's it's actually bringing a shocking amount of traffic to the site right now from straight through Google, just organic results. But ANR basically read hundreds and hundreds of pages of government regulations, so you don't have to. So I'm I'm curious, Craig, did you apply? Were you able to apply? Given that you do, you know you have a U.S. company, but you don't live in in the U.S. No, nope, I didn't apply. So right, I my salary does not qualify. And the other two U.S.-based folks that we have are 1099, so they don't qualify either. Got it. And they can apply. I, th- I believe they can apply on their own. So then uh, I'm curious your take on the stimulus overall. And you can comment on the U.S. stimulus, which was $2 trillion or just, you know, there's most, there's a lot of countries doing stimulus. Do you feel like this stimulus is going to work? Do you feel like this kind of stimulus helps, that it, it'll, it'll fix things, that it'll help, that it won't? What's your take? I'm glad we have Anar on the call because I know he knows a lot more about this than I do. But but my take as a kind of relative layman to like macroeconomics is that the stimulus is designed to prop up companies for sure, and, and more so Wall Street, I think, than than the people that really need the money right now, which are the people that don't have jobs. Because I think so many people have already gotten laid off. And, and these 
companies that are getting PPP or EIDL or whatever may not go rehire them. And I know that's the terms of, of some of the forgiveness and stuff, but a lot of these companies have a lot bigger things to worry about than paying back a 1% loan versus it being forgiven and spending that money on things like rent or paying salaries to, to founders and, and keeping the lights on. And the other side of that is, you know, the $1,200 that people get personally. And, you know, we have kids and so we got a little bit more for like the the direct stimulus. But no, I don't. I mean, you see the stock market is up today when we when they announced 5 million people file for unemployment. And that's... Only 5 million, Craig. Come on. It's, it's just crazy. It's just... <laughs> and like I know in the, in the Tiny Seat Slack, there was the like picture of the Titanic sinking and like the back end was all the way up in there. And they're like, wow, look, we're going up and we should be going down. And that's like exactly how I feel. It's like everybody thinks this is okay. And we are on like ground zero of this, of like having small businesses. And I see it left and right with my friends and people that I work with that are just going through a ton of pain. And uh, no, I don't, I don't think it's enough. How about you, Anar? You're kind of my resident expert that I go to for this kind of stuff. <laughs> just because you, you, you didn't want to be bothered to read all the there's hundreds of pages of uh, legal mumble jumble and keep up with the treasury guidance and whatnot. <laughs> I really did not. Not at all interested. But, but, I, and I, even try, but I, I would go to you for like stimulus. What are your thoughts on it? Like you're, you're just a very you know, thoughtful person on, on this type of stuff. Like, do you feel like it helps? Do you feel like it works? You know, what, what is, what's your take? So I think I think it's important to understand there's two different classes almost of stimulus. So so there is the sort of what what Craig's talking about, or at least a perception of, which is more like a bailout of what feels like a bailout of Wall Street to a lot of people. You know, there's a this is essentially quantitative easing. So this is what the Fed is doing in terms of effectively buying, basically printing money and putting it into the market to keep liquidity going. And the the size of that is is pretty incredible in my view. So. Just for, for context, they had, you know, quantitative easing during the financial crisis. They spent however many billions of dollars it was over about eight months. And there was a lot of political hoo-ha around the time about whether that was supposed to be, whether that was appropriate or too much money or, or all this stuff. But for the last few weeks now, we've been pumping out that much money into the market every week. So what we did during the financial crisis over eight months, we've been pumping out every week or so. Uh, for the last several weeks. Now, on top of that, there's some other stuff like the Federal Reserve is it doesn't isn't actually allowed to legally to buy corporate bonds, so so you know high yield bonds or whatever. But they somehow managed to engineer their way around that, and so you know th- we're now in a situation where the Fed is buying corporate debt, and and there's a lot of people who believe that, and even in some cases high yield or what's sometimes called junk debt. And in a lot, a lot of cases, there are a lot of people saying, like, why should the Fed be doing this? This is this is bailing out, you know, the economy. But I think I think it'll get even. I think it most likely it'll get to the point where now the Fed's buying equities of of companies just to prop things up, and that's where like you know you hear these you know several trillion dollars worth of cash, all this stuff being spent. The second part is sort of the the more sort of small business a stimulus part of it, which is the, you know, the PPP and the IDL. And I actually just heard this morning that PPP just ran out of money. <laughs> so as, as they only designated $349 billion to it. And uh, they don't seem to have got their arrow, you know, their ducks in a row in order to actually refill that, which is, I think is devastating and, and a political failure. And I, I, I mean, from, well, from what I was looking through 
the, the, the stimulus packages and what was going on, I always thought that this should have been an, an, a grant just administered by the IRS. The IRS has the data that these banks are, are asking for anyway. Like if you look at what the documentation required, they're asking for, you know, Form 941s, which essentially the IRS already has. So why couldn't the IRS have just looked at that already and just issued the grant? That would have been much more efficient. I think they need to get their act together and, you know, obviously refill this program, even though it's, you know, it would have been better as a grant. But this is what we have right now, and they, they need to refill it. Now, in terms of how effective it is as a stimulus, I, I think it can be pretty effective, but it needs to just put more money into more pockets sooner. Like I, I see some of the zeitgeist out there, like we should we should not take the money if you're only only take the money if you're about to run out of cash and you're in dire straits. And I've been screaming at it. So that's not how it should work. You you need you need as many companies as possible to grab this money, and that's how you basically keep the economy from shedding like six million unemployed every single week for weeks and weeks on end. So that's my view. But of course, that does require Congress to get their act together and actually refill the program. Right. So do you think the fact that the PPP ran out is is a sign that it's not going to help very much? Or what's your thought there? I think it obviously is helping a lot because it, it speaks to the demand, right? So it speaks to how many companies are you know in distress and asking for assistance. And I, and I think that's obviously helpful. But I think like there's two there's two ways you can screw that up in my mind. One is you discourage companies from actually applying either by you know making it very complicated or you know having situations where people can't get a bank relationship that would allow them to apply in the first place which is which is still true i still know people who as of today the the funds have run out but they don't they don't have a bank that will allow them to apply so then they can't access the funds and so that's that's one side of it but i also think the other side of it is discouraging companies from applying or somehow making this sort of shame based that you shouldn't doing it has almost the same effect on the economy overall i think it's uh, i think it's a mistake to to discourage companies from applying i mean because every every day counts that's the thing like stimulus needs to be the right amount of money at the right amount of time and if it takes 2 weeks for congress to get their ass together this will be devastating for small business it just it just it just will be because people will then just lose faith they'll just you know they'll say, send up they give up leases, they'll fire people, and and it'll be much worse than it needs to be. Yeah, my experience applying was I've been a Bank of America customer for 30-something years, and with my business, probably close to 20 years I've had an account. And so the day that PPP opens, I get the email, and I click on the link to apply, and it says, it has me log into online banking, and it says, you do not have a loan relationship, a lending relationship, or a credit card with us, so you can't apply. And I was thinking to myself, are you kidding me? Like, I've been a customer for this long, and then within, I don't know, three, four days, they turned they turned that around, and they updated their application such that you could say, yes, I have a lending relationship, or no, I don't. And, you know, who knows if I'm guessing they'll give priority to people who who have, you know, that relationship with them. But then even well, yesterday or today, I got another email asking for more info. So I don't know. I have no idea if if I've missed the boat already, you know, by not getting because it didn't have all the docs or whatever. So it definitely felt it felt a lot tumultuous in the sense that every bank handled it differently. And some banks aren't ready and some banks aren't hosting it. So people aren't available. So, yeah, to your point of was there just a better way to organize this? You know, if you're going to try to forgive it anyways. Definitely was. I definitely think there was. It's like, listen, like the IRS already knows what your payroll was at whatever period they could have looked at because you have to report it quarterly at least in the u.s you have to report it quarterly what you're paying your employees what you're paying yourself what's the sales self-employment taxes and if you look at the applications that are going in 
These are exactly the government, the, the documents that the banks are requiring. Now, why did we put the banks in the middle of this? Like, they just some of them are just aren't set up for it. And then we have to pay, you know, obviously fees to the banks. And it's like on the three hundred and forty nine billion dollars, they think ten billion will go to banks just to, to, to manage the, the process, which that seems, I don't know, inefficient to me. You know, economy goes to hell in a handbasket and the banks maybe make out well like they did in 2008 with the bailout. It's pretty, pretty interesting times these days. Did you guys check out the Stuart Butterfield? He had a long thread. It was his week leading up to the quarantine, the self-quarantine. I sent you guys a link in advance. But I'm curious, Craig, as you read through this thread, he's basically giving a day-by-day account of, hey, this was the last time, ended up being my last time in a restaurant. And discussions with senior leadership and stressing about, you know, what's going to happen. But then also looking, you know, Slack, obviously remote chat tool and their usage just up and to the right in an insane way, much like we see Zoom doing. You know, which pieces of his story resonated with you as a founder? Yeah, I think it was a lot more of like the the personal things, you know, because we, we can't do anything and, and haven't been able to for a long time. So I think it's the personal stuff. Like last time we went to a restaurant and then we went and bought some flowers and like all these kinds of things. And we we talk a lot about that. Like, hey, I'm glad we did these things when we could because... We can't now. And, you know, even when things open back up, who knows, you know, when that'll be kind of officially, a lot of those places won't open back up right away. And then talking about stimulus and, and, you know, how that rolls out and stuff, a lot of them will never come back. So, yeah, I mean, on a personal level, I I think that I'm not a big like it will never be the same thing, but, but I think some things will never be the same. You know, some of our favorite restaurants won't have gotten stimulus or not enough or not quick enough and just have to go do something else. And and so, yeah, I think it is worth taking some time now to kind of reflect on the things we did and enjoyed and kind of took advantage of because we might not be able to do some of them anymore. But yeah, that's just on a personal level. Oh man, now I'm bummed out. That was... <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to Craig. <laughs> Probably pretty realistic. What What's your take, NR? You have thoughts? Yeah, I, I have the same stuff. I mean, I remember him seeing this, you know, putting this thread out, you know, I guess it's two or three weeks ago now and reading it and, and feeling sort of deja vu and some of the feelings that I had around, particularly on, on the personal uh, side. You know, as as you know, Rob, I was I was sort of shouting about this stuff for, for a long time and just saying like, this is going to be a problem. This is going to be a problem. This is going to be a problem. And I, I think like just one of the things he noted is, you know, the, the night that it became, you know, real in America. This is a combination of the NBA season being suspended and Tom Hanks reporting that he was testing positive. I think it's odd to me because I I see that in his thread and I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. And I, because I remember it with relief, it was like March 11th and I was, everyone finally was like, wait, this is a real thing. You're not crazy. (laughs) Exactly. I was like, wait, am I, am I, is this just a big conspiracy theory on Twitter? Am I spending too much time on Twitter again? I don't know. But yeah, that was the main stuff. Just the, the sort of personal like, oh, this turned out to be the last time I was in a restaurant. And, you know, this turned out to be the last time I did X, Y, Z for, for several months. But yeah, but I, I mean, on the point of like things won't be the same. Like I think, like I think obviously some restaurants and Main Street's going under. I don't, but some of the downsides, for example, to the to the stimulus package on the small business side is like, which which I actually made this mistake initially. I thought you could get a loan and a grant to cover not only your payroll, but actually also rent during that time. And that turns out not to be the case. Like friends of mine, they have they just bought a, a cafe three months ago, <laughs> four months ago now, I guess. 
And, uh, you know, their rent is probably their main ex- single expense line. And, and, and how are they going to, how are they going to cover that? I don't know. I don't know. So, yeah, that doesn't make a ton of sense to me, but this thread, I, I felt the same way about it as I read through. And I remember that specifically, you know, one of the nights I was up at the North shore with one of my sons and you and I were on the phone and that was when the president declared a state of emergency at that point, And he touches on that in here. So it definitely, it is starting to feel, well, it, I guess I have a couple thoughts. One is you remember where you were when things, certain things happen, right? When, when 9-11 happened, you know, you remember how you felt and what house you were in and, and how you heard about it. And hopefully there are great things that happen that we remember where we were, but oftentimes it feels like it's the traditional one, like my parents would bring up is like, everyone remembered where they were when they heard Kennedy got shot or Martin Luther King was shot. And I, I don't want it to always be the negative things, but it certainly does seem that way. And that's how this will feel. I'm curious going forward, like how, wonder how like our kids will remember this, you know, and I think it depends on their age, obviously, and depends on personality, but it, it's such a trippy thing, I think for them to be, it, to be in this, you know, again, using that unprecedented word, it's unprecedented and hopefully doesn't happen again in our lifetime. But I, I feel like the first couple weeks of the, of the quarantining, I was incredibly unproductive. I was trying to get five, 10 hours of work done a week. I mean, I would sit in front of my computer for seven, eight hours a day, but I just wasn't getting that much work done. And then a bit flipped for me and it was somewhere in the third week, late in the third week, early in the fourth. And now I feel like I'm extremely focused. I'm still incredibly, I'm sad at the tragedy. You know, I, I still get the newspaper and, and we, I read the headlines every day. And I personally am just, I just feel so bad, you know, for, for what's going on. But I also, I think hit the point where it's like, okay, I can't sit and, and wallow in these feelings all the time. You know, I have to, I have to, I have stuff to do here that, that is hopefully helping other people running my business, supporting my founders, doing this podcast. People have been emailing saying, thanks for continuing to put it out because it helps them get through the week. You know, it helps them have a, a bright spot in the day to, to whatever, hear about, you know, what, what's going on as well as the microphone on air live streams and just all the stuff that I'm doing. So I feel like I've found almost like a renewed per- sense of purpose, you know, and a renewed sense of, of motivation just in the past couple of weeks. Cause like you, you guys, I believe this, I've lost count, but this is either f- fifth week or it might be the sixth week. I genuinely don't know of, of quarantining. I'm curious, Craig, how are you like mentally in terms of um, being able to focus on work? You know, similar, I, I guess this relates to the question I asked earlier, but I asked it more about your team uh, and the company. Yes. Yeah, similarly at the the first surely week or two, I was, yeah, just sad. And, you know, I've heard it being compared to like mourning, you know, losing a loved one that you're just sad and then you're angry and then you accept it and learn kind of how to live with things. And yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm good (laughs) on a, on a kind of spiritual level. I'm productive at work. I feel really happy and blessed that, that my family is, is happy and healthy. And I mean, it really is business as usual for me. I'm actually working more now than I normally would because there's nothing else to do. So I'm, I'm working 25% more than I normally do. And that's, I, I feel really happy about that because yeah, I do have a you know responsibility to, to our team and to our customers. And, and I'm glad that we're able to continue serving them. Yeah, and Einar, you had told me early on that you were super distracted like I was, and I think most of us were. How has that settled out for you? Or do you still feel like the running thread, you know, of of kind of stress and, and news is taking you away from work more than you'd like? I think it's gotten much better this week. So I, I think I feel like I was productive the, the sort of previous two weeks before that too, but mostly in sort of the 
diving into the PPP programs and and that is, you know, <laughs> honestly, like requires a lot of outrage <laughs> a fair amount of the time. And also like because my contact detail was on those pages on, on microconf around, you know, just reach out if you have any questions, you know, I would get three, four, five, six, seven, eight emails a day with, in some cases, pretty heartbreaking situations where people were asking for advice. That sort of started to die down a little. And sort of I've, I've been able to get back to more doing sort of what I was planning to do this time, this time of year. But certainly like just because of what my main job is going forward, which is it's sort of on hold. That's <laughs> sort of the thing. Like we were supposed to be in the market right now, you know, going for aggressively fundraising for a fund too. And, and, and certainly that side of things is pretty much on like, well, I don't know when we're going to do that again. And, and so it, it's, it's been better, but certainly I don't, I don't have the same sort of level of productivity like from what you guys seem to be saying now. Could I add one thing? Yeah, no, do it. I don't want to leave with like a, a down in the doldrums, really pessimistic view of this, because I think one thing that's really interesting here compared to like the financial crisis is this was like an external event that drove everything into the dumps that it is now, right? And all these people have lost their jobs or furloughed or whatever because of an external event. And that external event will go away. And things will come back much more quickly, I think, out of this than they did the financial crisis. You know, that was years and this could be months, you know, sometime around the end of the year maybe. And so I think that folks that have been impacted, if we can survive, say, till the end of the year, I think there are going to be huge opportunities talking about this, you know, trend towards remote work and things like podcasting, webinars and and digital products and things like that. And folks that listen to this podcast, I think all are rightfully thinking like, okay, as the world comes out of this, what does it look like? And how can I as like a smart, nimble, bootstrap, you know, scrappy kind of person position myself and our brands to be ready for that? And I think we all are very uniquely ready to kind of lead that charge. And so that's maybe something that gives me a little optimism and, and folks for this community. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and I, I appreciate us leaving it on a positive note. I was going to say that like, I have tended to be the optimist in the room in this situation and in a lot of situations. And I think Anar and I have been good balancing because he was saying, oh, it's going to get really bad. And I was like, I don't think it'll get that bad. Turns out he was right. But <laughs> when, I, you know, when I look back at even just four episodes ago, Anar and I were, were on here talking about, I was like, this is a tragedy. It's devastating things will get better. You know, we need to acknowledge what's happening with the reality of the current situation, but we also need to acknowledge that it, that it will get better, that it isn't, everything's not going to change permanently. And so there is, to me, there's a bright future to look ahead to. And I, I don't say, you know, I say that with all respect to the current frontline workers. We have multiple friends who are physicians and they're going through crazy, we have an ER doc, like it's terrible and it's very hard and it's very stressful for them. And, and I want to fully acknowledge that. But also there is a there is another side, there is the, you know, there's the other side that we will get to within months, hopefully, but I guess we'll see how that all pans out. Well, gentlemen, let's wrap on that positive note. Thanks so much for uh, agreeing to come on the show and for working with me to find a time that works. Anar, you were a last minute substitute. And I do, I do appreciate that. I had a guest who unfortunately had to, had to cancel and I'll try to get her booked on a uh, future episode. Craig Hewitt, if folks want to keep up with you on Twitter, you are the Craig Hewitt. And of course, castos.com is your podcast hosting service that this podcast and Tiny Seed Tales and Microconf on Air are all hosted on. So check that out if you haven't already. Anar Volset, you are Anar Volset on Twitter. 
and tinyseed.com if you want to see what he's up to. Actually, if they really want to see what you're up to, we'll link up the micro, your MicroConf COVID-19 business relief overview article that I know you spent dozens of hours putting together. The most productive I've been in the last few weeks, so yeah. Exactly, the most output. So thanks again, gents, for coming on the show. Hope to have you back again soon. Thanks, Rob. Thanks. Stay tuned next week to hear another update from Mike Tabor on how things are going with Blue Tick. He and I haven't spoken, especially not on the show, but we literally haven't spoken since uh, all the self-quarantine stuff happened. So it'll be, I'll be interested to hear how, how he's thinking. And then I'm looking to do a Q&A episode probably the week after. So if you have a question for me or for a guest that I decide to bring on, please leave me a voicemail at 888-801-9690 or email questions that started with the rest of us. And if you send a Dropbox link to an audio file, that will go to the top of the queue. If you enter text, it will be in the queue of current questions we have. If you're not subscribed to the show, you should search for startups in any podcatcher that you have. And of course, we have a full transcript of each episode on the website, typically within a few days after the episode is published. Thanks so much for listening this week. I'll see you next time.